Again, it's really good to see all of y'all. Thank y'all for being a part of our group tonight. Most gracious Heavenly Father, we do thank you for the many privileges and joys that you give us in life, simply the breath in our noses, the thoughts in our minds, and the hope in our hearts, and they all come from you, and we thank you for that. We thank you for your word. Your word is truth. Sanctify us in that truth. You know every man and woman in this room. You know all of our struggles and all of our needs. Uh, You know all of our hopes and all of our dreams. You know all about us. And my prayer is that for the next few minutes, as we talk about your word, as we talk about your truth, that you will open our eyes to it, that you will that you will open our hearts to it, that you will give us the strength, the willingness, the wisdom, the knowledge, and the ability to receive your truth and believe your truth. And I pray you'll give us the desire to walk in those truths. So um, help us tonight. Help us to see you, uh, to trust you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. So again, um, the title of our lesson tonight will be um, First Principles and of Holy Scripture Part 2. We did of Holy Scriptures Part 1 last week when we were together. Um, what I've handed out to each of you guys is basically a uh, is chapter 1 of something known as the London Baptist Confession of Faith. It's a creedal statement. Um, most of you, if any of you have been to any kind type of church, like a Methodist church or an Anglican church or a Presbyterian church or an Episcopal church or a Catholic church or uh, uh, pretty much all churches, you've probably said the Apostles' Creed before. I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, right? Who was born of the Virgin Mary, uh, conceived of the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, uh, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. On the third day, he arose again from the dead. He ascended into heaven, and he sits at the right hand of God, the Father Almighty. From there, he will come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy uh, Catholic Church. That's a little C Catholic Church. Uh, the communion of saints, the resurrection body, and life everlasting. Now, why I say that? Um, what that's called is it's called a creedal statement. And what happened was uh, a couple centuries ago, uh, actually, a lot of centuries ago, a group of men sat down and there was a lot of heresy in the church. So what they tried to do is they tried to make a statement that encompassed the teachings of Scripture. So when you meet your friend on the sidewalk and he says, well, what do you believe as a Christian? You don't have time for, to go from Genesis to Revelation and explain to him everything in the Bible. But these creedal statements are a short and brief summary of the entire analogy of faith. What do I mean when I say the analogy of faith? What that means is is that the story from Genesis to Revelation tells the story of Jesus and his redemption of mankind. And that story flows. It's, It's linear and it's cyclical, but it flows all the way from Genesis to Revelation. And that story never contradicts itself because it's God's word to us. Okay. So what these creedal statements do is they try to define the teachings of Scripture. And what we're learning tonight is uh, the first principle of the faith, the first six chapters of the London Baptist Convention talks about the foundations of Christianity, the foundations of our salvation, the foundations of biblical teaching. And the greatest foundation there is, is the Word of God. Remember what Jesus said, if a man builds his house on a rock, when the storms come, the house will stand. If a man builds his house on sand, when the storms come, it'll collapse, right? The house will collapse. And so there are a lot of churches, there are a lot of denominations out there that build their uh, stance, their stand on tradition. 
And they build their stance on emotions and experience and visions and dreams and revelations. And they forget to build it on the Word of God. And the Word of God is true and it's everlasting, right? And so what we're going to do tonight is we're going to kind of, I want to quickly review with you a couple of things we talked about last week for some of the new guys in the class. Um, This is actually only our second part of this series. I'm going to try to do this each month for a while. Um, <clears throat> but last time we were together, we talked about how our faith, saving faith, if you truly are a blood-bought, born-again child of God, it is because you have faith in Jesus Christ and what He did up for you on the cross, okay? So one of the foundational truths of uh, Christian, the Christian faith, of saving faith, is this. Our faith is objective not subjective. Our faith is objective, not subjective. All right, what do I mean by that? Your faith is in something. Okay? And if your faith is based on what you think and what you feel and what you know, then it's subjective. It's based on the subject that has it. If your faith is objective, it's it, it means it has an objective. Your faith has an objective. And what is the objective? That Jesus Christ came and uh, walked in the flesh, that He died on a cross, they buried Him in a grave, three days later He rose again. And now He's sitting at the right hand of the Father in heaven watching His salvation plan play out in history. Right? And so our faith has to be in Christ and our faith has to be in His Word. Not in our feelings, our emotions, our experiences, our circumstances, because you know as good as I do, all of those things change. But God's Word never changes. So, if you're in this room today, and you are depending on anything that you have done, anything that you are doing right now, or anything that you plan to do in the future, if that's what your salvation is based on, you're building your foundation, your faith, on sinking sand. You see? Our faith cannot be in what we have done. Right? I hear people say all the time, well, I gave my life to Jesus. Well, Jesus gave you life to begin with. It ain't yours to give to be at all. You know? So it's not what you do. I went down an aisle and I prayed. I got baptized. I take communion. I don't cheat. I don't smoke. I don't cheat on my wife. I, I, I'm good. I don't do. I, 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 I. You see? All of that is subjective faith. It's based on what I'm doing. Our faith has to be based on what God says. And what God promises. Because that's the only thing that doesn't change. Right? So, if you were dependent on something you have done, something you were doing today, or something you're going to do tomorrow for your salvation, then you're leaning on a broken stick. It actually even works in life life concepts too. If you're dependent on what you've done in the past, what you're doing today, or what you're going to do tomorrow to stay sober, you will fall. Because who are you dependent on? You. But if God changes your heart, and puts new desires in your heart, and you lean on those desires. You lean on His promises and not your will. His will be done, right? You lean on His will, and then you won't fall. Amen. Every time we fall, it's because we're leaning back on ourselves. Yep. Right? So, our faith has to be objective. It has to be towards the object of God and His promise to us. Not subjective. Not on how I feel today or what I'm doing or what I've done or or what my circumstances are right now. If my faith is built on my circumstances, I'm going to be constantly looking for the roof to fall in. You see? 
My faith is not based on any of those things. It's based on Christ and Him alone and His promises. So, I always use the illustration, if I were to go stand on top of a 20-story building and have all of the faith in the world that I could fly. Like, watch this. If I had the faith of a mustard seed that I could fly. (laughs) And I jump off of a 20-story building, I'm going to fall to the ground and die. Why? Because I am, my faith is opposed to the law of God. What law is that? The law of gravity. And it works every time. And God does not change the law of gravity for anybody. Except Jesus when He walks on water, right? But for me and you, He don't change that law. Well, His law, His word is the same way. He don't change it for anybody. That's a good thing. It's a good thing. So our faith has to be in something that's real. It has to be in an object that's true or it's no good at all. It's a, it's a lost faith. Does that make sense? That was the first thing we learned together last week, that, that our faith is, has to be objective and not subjective. We learned that even the devil knows how to use Scripture, so please be careful. He knows the Bible better than you and I do, and he believes it more than we do. He believes it. He believes the Bible. And he can quote it word for word. Now, he always likes to twist it, but he quotes it. Right? And we used the example last time when he was trying to get Jesus to jump off of the temple. What did he say? If you really are the Son of God, if, he's questioning the truth. That's what he's doing when he says if. If you truly are the Son of God, jump off of here. Let me see the angels catch you. Because it is written that he will command his angels concerning you and they'll guard you in all your way. You won't strike your foot against a stone. What was the devil doing? He is quoting Psalms 91. He who dwells in the shelter of the Most High God will abide in the shadow of the Almighty. He was quoting that verse. And what he said was, wait a minute, the Bible promises that if you are his son, that he won't even let you hurt your foot on a stone. So jump off of here and let me see the angels catch you. Right? But what the devil didn't add in there is the next verse says this, and he will trample the lion and the adder under his foot. See, the devil stopped short on that quote. He talked about the angels catching Jesus' foot, but he didn't talk about what Jesus was going to do with that foot in just a couple of years. He's fixing to crush his head with it, you see? So the devil is very good at quoting Scripture, but he always twists it. Remember in the garden, what did he tell Adam and Eve? You will not really die. Did God really say that? Did He really say you couldn't eat from all these trees out here? That's crazy. You will not die. God knows... That when you eat from that tree, your eyes are going to be open. You're going to know the difference of good and evil. You're going to be just like God. So what is he doing? Not only is he he doubting God, not only is he twisting what God said, but now he's putting words in God's mouth. You see? And so we need to know the Scriptures. We need to know what our faith is based on. And our faith is based on the truth of God's Word. We found out last time that we were together that God's Word is sufficient. What do I mean when I say it's sufficient? What does that mean? God's Word is sufficient. It's everything you need. It's everything you need. God's Word is full of knowledge and wisdom. Do you all remember we talked about that last time? What was the difference in knowledge and wisdom? Knowledge is what you know. Wisdom is being able to apply what you know. A, B, C, D, F, G, H, H, K, L, M, P, Q, R, S, T, V, W, X, Y, Z. Now I know my ABCs. Next time won't you sing with me? But that's just knowledge. You can get a four-year-old, a three-year-old to sing an ABC. Matter of fact, at two they can sing them. A, B, C, D, they can sing it. Now I know my ABCs. But you look at that child and say, hey, kid, 
W-I-S-D-O-M. And the kid looks at you like you're crazy. Why? Because he has knowledge, but he don't know how to apply it yet. He doesn't have the wisdom to apply it. You see? So God's Word, there's knowledge there. And listen, guys, there's a lot of people that's got their head full of Scriptures. Man, they can quote it off like a parrot. Oh, yes. Right? right? Mm-hmm. But it takes more than just knowing it in your mind. The Holy Spirit has to make you wise unto salvation. You see? You have to take that knowledge and it has to be turned into wisdom. And wisdom is our applied knowledge. So we learned that. We learned about how God's Word is specific revelation. Specific. It speaks specifically to us. We learned that God speaks to us in two types of revelation. Right? One of them was natural revelation. What do I mean when I say that God speaks to us through natural revelation. What is natural revelation? Natural revelation is the reason why you like to go lay your lounge chair out on the beach and watch the waves crash in. Hopefully it's for the waves and not the girls in the bikinis, right? (laughs) You see what I'm saying? Like natural revelation is the sunset and the moon and the sun and the moon and the stars and the skies and the rain and the and the trees and the birds and the bees. That's natural revelation. And when you walk out in your yard and walk around in your yard during the daytime, God is screaming out at you saying He's there. And everybody knows it. Even the little pygmy fellow with no clothes running around in the jungle somewhere knows that there's a God. He may have never seen a Christian missionary in his life, but he's praying to a totem pole or to a crocodile in the river or to the sun or an eagle that's flying by. Because deep down inside of all of us, we were created in the Amago Deo, in the image of God. And what that means is the knowledge of God is in you. And nature confirms that to you. The problem with nature is nature can show me that there is a God, but nature does not give me a relationship with God. Nature is very unpredictable. We have tropical storms and hurricanes and typhoons and tsunamis. Uh, You ask the little lamb out in the field when the wolf gets hold of his throat, does he like nature and it's revelation? And he'll tell you no, right? You go to the lab and get some bad results back on your lab work, that is not good revelation. And that's nature speaking, that you are a human being and you're fallen and you're sick. You see? So we can know there is a God through natural revelation, but it takes specific revelation for us to truly have a relationship with God, to truly know it. And where does that specific revelation come from? The Word of God. Okay? So, uh, we talked about how God's Word reveals His promise to us. His promise to us. Um, how many of you have heard, in, as you've read through the Scripture, and uh, uh, those who call upon the name of the Lord shall be saved? Have you ever heard that before? Right? Well, what's the name of the Lord? Jesus, right? There's no other name under heaven whereby we might be saved. But there's also a bigger concept to that name. It's not just yelling Jesus. Because if you're in Mexico, you yell Jesus, right? And if you're Hebrew, you yell Joshua. So it's more than just that name. His name is who he is. Jesus is the revealed promise of the Father. All of Scripture points to him. Amen. So when you're believing on His name, you're believing His promise. Amen. Does that make sense? Mm-hmm. All right. So um, God's promise is revealed through His Word. The only way that you're ever going to understand the, the promises you have is by understanding God's Word. Mm-hmm. His Word will, we learned last time we were together that His Word will refine your conscience. What do I mean by refine your conscience? Our consciences tend to get 
uh, seared, don't they? Right? We live rough lives and we hang around with rough people and we talk rough and we act rough and we think rough and the longer you hang around with those folks, the less soft you become. Uh, you, you see? Um, we, t- we used the example last time we were together talking about smoking cigarettes. That's something that most everybody in this room can relate to. When you first started smoking cigarettes, you took a drag and coughed and turned white and fell on the floor and laid down and said, Oh God, if you let me feel better, I won't ever do that again, right? <coughs> you cough. Why are you coughing? Because your lungs are telling you, Yo, this ain't good for you, right? But what happens? The longer you smoke, what happens? Your lungs lose that sensitivity, don't they? And instead of your body telling you it's bad for you, now your legs bouncing when we get to a quarter to the, quarter to the hour. You already got outside. <laughs> now it's good for you. You see the difference? And that's exactly the way your conscience works. When you feed your conscience with the world, the flesh, and the devil, it becomes hardened and becomes desensitized to the things that are good. So God's Word will uh, refine your conscience. God's Word preserves truth. God's Word comforts the church. His promises are a comfort to those who are believers. It's a terror to those who are in rebellion to Him, but it's a comfort to His people. It uh, deters the flesh. What do I mean by that? It deters the flesh. My natural fallen desires. When I stay in His Word, it constantly makes me aware when my flesh is trying to raise itself up. Remember, we talked last time together. Um, it's not really frustrating, but it is an actuality that the longer you live and walk in Christ and the more you study His Word and the more you yield yourself to Him, the more sensitive you become when you're not walking in His Word and when you're not being sensitive to Him. You become more sensitive. You, you become more aware of when you're not walking in the truth. And the only difference in a child of God and a child of the world is is that because we both still have sinful inclinations, terrible sinful inclinations. Mm-hmm. The difference in a child of the world and a child of God is, is that the child of the world embraces those desires. Uh, the child of God is grieved. The Holy Spirit is grieved in him when he, when he reaches out and chases after, walks after the flesh, if you will. So it uh, deters the flesh. It guards against the malice of Satan, right? When we put on the armor of God, one of the main pieces of armor is what? The sword of the Spirit, right? We carry that sword with us. And we also learn um, <clears throat> that the Bible was committed to writing. And because it was committing to writing, it makes new revelation uh, cease and irrelevant. What do I mean by that? We talked about this last time we were together, and I, I warn you guys in love. If somebody comes to you and says, I got a new revelation for you, and they're, they're not opening up the Scripture and reading the Scriptures to you, tell them, no, thank you, I don't need it. Because what that person is claiming to do is they're claiming to be inspired by God. What they're saying is what I'm saying to you is what God is saying to you. That's dangerous territory to be in, guys. If it's extra revelation... And it's true, it's unnecessary because it's already revealed in His Word. And if it's not true, it's a lie and it's heresy. So we have His Word, and that's what we need to rely on. And I can tell you guys that in our fallen nature, our flesh wants something new. Our flesh wants to have a dream that tells me what to do. My flesh wants me to know what the future is going to bring. My flesh wants to be able to control things. You see? And so 
one of the reasons that we reach out for this new revelation, for these dreams and these prophecies and these feelings, and the reason we reach out for those things is because our fallen nature don't want anything to do with the truth that's already been established. So we're looking for another truth. We're looking for a way to validate our feelings and our emotions and our experiences instead of simply relying on God's truth. So we talked about all of that together last time. Now that was, uh, if y'all see, that was chapter one, uh, chapter one and uh, paragraph one of our study. There's ten paragraphs. There's no way we'll get through all of it tonight. But let's go ahead and look at number two. Um, again, for those of you who are new and have not seen this, as we read through one of these paragraphs, what you'll notice is at the end of each sentence, there's a number. That number is a footnote. And down at the bottom of the paragraph, you'll see that number, and then you'll see the scriptural references for why that statement is made. Does that make sense? So every statement in here is backed up by scripture. It's a it's a uh, it's a defining of scripture for us. Uh, it's not bringing new scripture. It's just saying. The reason that we're saying this is because this is what the Scripture says. All right. So in uh, chapter 2, it says, Under the name of Holy Scripture, or the Word of God written, are now contained all the books of the Old and New Testaments, which are these. Now, we won't go through and read them all. Um, that's your man, I think, last month. Didn't you win? That's your Bible you won, right? Everybody hold that up? Yeah. He, he, he quoted all 66 books of the Bible and mm-hmm. won him a study Bible. Uh, he knew all of them, so... Uh, I've only had one other guy do that. A guy named Randy did it one time for me. I gave him a nice leather Bible. But uh, it's good to know all the books. I read it all the time. Good. That's fantastic. And and it's and it's guys. It's good to know the books of the Bible. It's how. Now be honest. Is it not embarrassing when you go to church and they say turn to Obadiah, and you have to go to the the preface and you know the the table of contents and find out what page is on? Isn't that kind of embarrassing? Like any y'all. I'm not gonna pick on you, but any y'all in here got tabs? Y'all got tabs? Anybody got tabs? Uh, like on the on the pages where, like, are you with me? Where it's, it's got where you can flip to Matthew or you can flip to. Right? Well, the the truth of the matter is, if you're familiar with your sword, you know how to handle it. And and so and we talked about that last time. Imagine one day when you get to heaven and you meet Amos and he's gonna be like, Hey, how did you like my book? And he's gonna be like, Oh. <laughs> Right? Sorry about that, brother Amos. I missed that one. Yeah, I, I was sleeping or thinking about getting to Shoney when that, when the preacher was preaching on that one. So, so think about that, guys. It's important to know these books. So, the first five books of the Bible, uh, five we know are called the what? The Pentateuch, right? They were written by who? Moses, and so they're known they're known as the Torah or the Law. All right, um, and then we have uh, uh, the history books, uh, Joshua and Judges and Ruth and First, Second Samuel, First, Second Kings, First, Second Chronicles, uh, Ezra, Nehemiah, uh, and Esther. Then we get into what are the next books called? Job, Psalms, Proverbs, Ecclesiastes. Poetry. It is poetry, but they're known as the wisdom books. There, the yeah. books of wisdom. All right, Song of Solomon. Then we have the prophets. We have four major prophets: Isaiah, Jeremiah, Ezekiel, and Daniel. And the rest are known as the minor prophets. There's twelve of those. That is the Old Testament, the Old Covenant, right? The Old Promise. And then we get into the New Testament, the New Covenant, the New Promise. And and guys, I want you to understand now, the Old Testament is just as much God's promise as the New Testament. 
And, and we talked about this last time we were together. It's very important for you to remember this. When Jesus and Peter and Paul and James and John were running around preaching the gospel, they couldn't tell people to turn to John 3.16. It wouldn't be written for another 30 years. They were preaching the gospel out of the Old Testament. They could turn to Psalm 22 and say, Look, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? Guys, don't you remember when Jesus was hanging on the cross and screaming that out? He was fulfilling that prophecy that his great-grandson David wrote. You see? And so all of Scripture is God's promise. And so when we think of the Gospels, we, we, Gospel meaning good news, we immediately jump to Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. And that's okay. That's good. We, we should. But the reality is from Genesis to Revelation is the Gospel. In Genesis chapter 3.15, God promised Eve that one day she would have a child that was going to crush the devil's head and the devil was going to bruise his foot. Right? So in Genesis 3.15, it is already mentioned how salvation was going to come about, that the woman was going to have a child that was going to crush the serpent's head. So the promise has been there all along. And if you're looking for it, you can find it anywhere, right? You can find it in Abraham and Isaac. Uh, Daddy, we got the wood and we got the knife and we got the, the fire. Where's the lamb? And what did he say? God will provide a lamb, right? And then John the Baptist comes along 1,400 years later. What did he say? Look, everybody, there's the lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. So the, the gospel message is proclaimed all through Scripture. It doesn't have to just necessarily be in the, in the New Testament. One, um, one of my favorite classes that I've ever taught is t- um, teaching Christ in the Old Testament. That's one of my favorite things to do. It's kind of like, where's Waldo? Like you read through there and you find him. He's all over the pages of Scripture. Why? Because the Holy Spirit is the one that inspired the men to write what they wrote, right? And what is the Holy Spirit? What did Jesus say the Holy Spirit was going to do when He come? Bring to mind Him. Yep. Like bring people to, to Christ. To lift him up where all could come to him. And so even when the Holy Spirit was inspiring the Old Testament writers, they were all pointing to Christ. Okay? Very important. Uh, New Testament, Matthew, Mark, Luke, John is known as the the Gospels. Um, Acts is the history of the church. And then we have the epistles. What what is an epistle? It's a letter wrote to the the church. Epistle is not a female apostle. That's that's, that's false, right? That's not true. Alright, and so... um, so there you have uh, the uh, all of those scriptures. So let's let's take and, and look. Where, where is my Bible? Where in the world did I put my Bible? All right. Yeah, let me borrow yours there for a second. Wait a minute. Well, I, I've got them, I got the I got the verses written now. Turn with me. Let's look at the, a couple of these scriptural references just to make sure we ain't skipping around. Look at um, 2 Timothy three sixteen. 2 Timothy. 2 Timothy three sixteen. Look what it says. All Scripture is given by inspiration of God. That means it's breathed out by God. Inspired by God. God breathed. All Scripture is God breathed. And is profitable. Right? What does it mean if something's profitable? it's, It's beneficial. Right? It's beneficial for what? For doctrine. What is doctrine? Teaching. Teaching. Guys... If you get around teachers and they say, oh, them people, they also buried in doctrine. They can't even experience the Holy Spirit. Listen, God works through the mind before He ever goes to the heart. God's Word is truth. And doctrine, another, you know what another word for doctrine is? Teaching. There is nothing in the world wrong with doctrine. Don't let anybody ever fool you into thinking, oh, I don't have to know all of that. That's just great. What does he say? Study 
to show yourself approved. A workman that don't need to be ashamed. You run around living your life basically chasing feelings and emotions, right? Oh, and, and, and I hear people say this kind of stuff all the time. Well, my God would never do that. Really? You ought to pick up a scripture and read. Because he will do that. Right? Yeah, because, because your God is yourself. Your God is what you think. That's a bad thing. Don't do that. All right, so all Scripture is given by inspiration of God. It is profitable for doctrine. That's teaching. What is reproof? Correction. Correction. And that's something we don't like. We didn't like it when we was a kid, and we don't like it when we were 20, 30, or 40. Or or 50. I'm 50 now, and I still don't like reproof. I'll just give you an example. Today I was at work. I had a guy, he's about my age, uh, and uh, we're both managers there at the store. And he come in and started reproving me about something I was doing. And I literally had to bite the side of my cheek because I was about to go up on him. Like, who do you think you are? Right? But what I realized is I'm supposed to just, I'm supposed to be a living example of Christ. And so what did I do? I just said, okay. All right, you're right. Amen. And I just went about my business and did what I was supposed to do. But reproof is never comfortable. We don't like being told we're wrong. I'll give you another example. I was at church the other night. And, um, not not my home church, not a church I'm a member of, but another church. And the people there, I love them very much. They're my family. I love them a lot. But one of the kids, one of the teenage girls, she's 16 years old. She came in there wearing spandex and a spandex shirt, and she was. It was very very revealing. And so I was sitting there. Now I'm not a member of this church, but I was sitting with one of the other with one of the other members in the church, and it was a, a, another grown man. And he looked at me and he said, "Do those young ladies know what they're doing to older men when they dress like that?" Do they know that they're causing us to stumble? And I said, no, I I honestly don't think they do. And I I said, and I don't think at 16 they're aware of the type of attention they're drawing to themselves. It's not the type of attention they want. They think it is, but it's not. And so I I went around and I asked a couple people in the church. I asked some of the ladies in the church. I said, should one of you ladies, shouldn't one of you ladies go and ask that young lady to go put on a a hoodie or something, you know, just put on something to cover up? And you know what they you know what they told me? What they said. They said we did that one time about ten years ago, and the family left the church and got mad because we corrected their daughter. And so they didn't say anything, and she ran around in the church the whole night dressed like that. And and it was like I'm not going to be the one to say anything about it because I'm not a member of that church. Mm-hmm. But as in, if I were an elder in that church, what I would have done is I would have went to the older leaders. And why? Because this is biblical. What does it say? Older women. Teach the women modesty. Like, that's Scripture. And so what are we doing in our church? We're hiding behind a tradition going, whoops, if I say something to her, it might offend them and they might leave the church. Right? And that's not love. So reproof and correction is an expression of love. It's not of condemnation. It's not of condemnation. And that is so sad that our churches have gotten that way. And it's the way society is around us now. Man, when I was a kid, and I work in a grocery store now, and I see some little banshees running around there, right? When I was a kid, other parents would have grabbed me and straightened me up in the aisle. Sons, quit that. Like, other people's parents. And you know what my mom would have done? She'd have said, thank you, ma'am, and then wore my behind it. You know what I'm saying? But, but, we, but we live in a world now where reproof is not something that anybody wants. We don't want reproof. Well, what the Scripture does, it reproves us. And that's why when we're out there living the wrong way, when we're out there drinking and drugging or chasing the women, when we're doing those kind of things, what you'll find is, I'm stealing this from a famous theologian. I didn't make this up. 
either that Word will keep you from sin or sin is going to keep you from that Word. Now, that's not something I said. That's a, that's a quote, right? What does that mean? You'll find that, guys, if you're living the wrong way, you won't be in your Scripture. You won't be in the Bible. You won't be reading it. And if you're in that, you won't be falling into sin. All right? So it's profitable for reproof, for correction, and for instruction in righteousness. Remember what we said? It refines our conscience. It reminds us. It brings a constant reminder to us of the difference in right and wrong. Okay. So let's see if we can't get to uh, number three here. Uh, do I have anybody here who is of the Catholic faith? Anybody Catholic in here? Huh? I was raised Catholic, but not about. Yeah, Houston, Tony, Houston, Tony, and Randy, Randy were both Catholic. Yeah. They were here, and uh, and so I, I, when I say this, I, 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 the Catholic Church still uses the Apocrypha. Okay, the Catholic Church still uses the Apocrypha. Um, it says in uh, the books commonly called the Apocrypha were not given by divine inspiration and are not part of the canon or the rule of Scripture. Have you all ever heard that word before, canon? That's not what uh, Captain Jack Black shoots off at the side of the boat or whatever. A canon, canon means the rule. Okay? So we have a canon for what an inch is. And all of our measuring rods um, express that canon. This is an inch. It's the rule or the standard by which you go by. Alright, so this canon of Scripture is the books that are the Word of God. And what it's saying is the Apocrypha is not of the Word of God. Does anybody in here have a Bible that's got the Apocrypha in it? If you, you do? Good. I, I, I've read it. And, and look what it says. It says this. It says, it says, Therefore they do not possess any authority in the church of God and are not to be regarded and used in the same way uh, in as other writings of men. So, there's nothing in the world wrong with reading it. The problem is when you start building doctrine on it and running your church based on what the Apocrypha says. The word Apocrypha is, comes from the Greek. It means hidden writings. And what you'll find in the Apocryphal writings is there's a lot of Gnostic stuff in there, a lot of yeah. kind of... Awesome. There's some beautiful stuff in them. Um, I, for example, um, I, I, let me read them to you. Let me read the, the names of the books in the Apocrypha. Um, Esdras, Tobit, um, Judith, uh, the extra writings of Esther, Wisdom of Solomon, Ecclesiasticus, Baruch, Letter of Jeremiah, the Prayers of Azariah, Susan, Bell and the Dragon, the Prayers of Manasseh, and First and Second Maccabees. That's that's the books of the Apocrypha. And and you know it's so funny. I was at I work with kids all the time, and I had a kid. And kids are always they they say is my name in the Bible. That's one of the things they love. Like a little kid named Jeremiah come to me and say my name. And I say yeah, your name's in the Bible. And so a kid come up to me the other night, and he said um, Tobias. And, yeah. he, and he said, is my name in the Bible? And, I, and at first I said, yeah, your name is in the Bible. And then I got to think about it. I was on the way home and I was realizing that's in the Apocryphal writings. Like, Tobias is not in the, in the regular scriptures that I can remember. So, uh, yes, sir? But the gap from uh, like Malachi to Matthew, the Apocryphal started filling yeah. in that spot because of... Uh, had a Greek rule yeah, yeah. The I've been the Maccabees. Yeah, yeah. They, um, it's most of them were most of them were written in the silent period between Malachi and the 400 years between Malachi and Matthew. Most of them were written there. Some of them weren't. And there's some of it is super duper interesting. Yeah. Um, it's the same way with the Septuagint, the the Greek 
uh, translation of the Old Testament. When you read the Septuagint uh, in in the book of Daniel, uh, there is a whole other chapter, and there's actually two chapters in the book of Daniel in the Septuagint, which is the Greek version of the Hebrew Old Testament. And the extra two chapters, one's at the very beginning, and what happens is um, Daniel has a... Uh, no, is it is it Daniel? Hold on, I'm telling you I'm wrong. Not Daniel. Um, Esther. The book of Esther. Esther writings of Esther. In this and, here. and what happens is um, uh, her uncle, Mordecai, uh, Mordecai, has a dream. And in the dream, there's these, these two dragons fighting. And what he's dreaming of is it's a prophecy of the two eunuchs that are trying to kill the king. So in other words, it's a it's a he had a premonition of those two guys trying to kill the king. Then he overheard their conversation. He knew it was real. And um, there's also, when, remember when Mordecai tells Esther that she needs to fast and pray for her people because she, maybe she was raised up for a time such as this? Remember that? Well, in, in the extra writing to Esther, there's a whole other chapter in the book of Esther. And the whole other chapter is Esther's prayer to God. It's beautiful. It's a beautiful prayer. Uh, and so you, you may have heard people say this before um, in, in, our, in our book of Esther the word God is not used in the book of Esther it's the only book in the Bible that doesn't have the word God in it All right. but if you read that extra writing it's in there because she's praying to God and she, she speaks his name so, so there are some interesting things in there in the book of Daniel there's, a, there's a, an amazing prayer um, from Shadrach I, I can't remember if it was Shadrach, Meshach or Abednego it's one of the three boys Right before they get thrown into the fire, there's a whole other chapter in the book of Daniel where they pray to God to ask Him to protect them from the fire. So there's some interesting things to read in there, and, and there's nothing in the world wrong with reading it, but it's not inspired by God, and it is not to be used for doctrine, for reproof, for instruction, yeah, for training up in righteousness. A lot of, a lot of like, uh, uh, God intervention. Yeah, like yeah. God. Yep. And and there's and there's error in it. There's like chronological errors yeah. and there's name errors in it. And so that's one of the reasons why they ruled it out as not being canon because it's got it's it's erroneous. It's got errors in it. But it is interesting to read. So if you get a chance you want to read it, you're more than welcome to do that. All right, so uh we're gonna have to call it tonight, I think. Let's see. Yeah, let's let we'll go ahead. Let's look at these um let, let's go look at the scriptural references here. Luke twenty four. Uh, verse 27 and uh, Luke 24 verse 44 and let's look and see what those say Um, I actually brought this up last time we were together this was on the road to Emmaus Jesus had just risen from the dead and these two disciples were walking down the road with Jesus and the scriptures tell us that they weren't able to see him they weren't able to know who he was he was kind of mysterious to them they didn't know him but he was walking down the road with them and they were talking and it's really in a hilarious conversation because they're all weeping and crying and saying man he was supposed to save us and like now he's dead and jesus um jesus is like what are y'all talking about what things are y'all talking about and they looked at Jesus and they said, are you the only person in all of Jerusalem that don't know what's happened? Yeah. Right? And the, the irony is that he's the only person in Jerusalem that does know what's happened. Right? And he's fixing to reveal himself to them as being alive. And he goes, walks down the road with them. They invite him to come into the house. And when he sits down at the table with them, it said he breaks the bread. And as soon as he broke the bread, what happened? Their eyes were open. They recognized him. Then he disappeared. Right? Right? Yeah, yeah it tripped me out too. Um, so, 
Uh, but look what it. <laughs> so look at Luke twenty four twenty seven. It says, "And beginning at Moses and all of the prophets, he expounded unto them in all the scriptures the things concerning himself." So what did he do? He started with Moses and the prophets, and he started telling them all of the things about him. He he went to the Old Testament and he preached himself. To them through the Old Testament. It says in verse 40, Luke 24, 44, that's when he reveals himself to his disciples. And it says this, And he said to them, These are the words which I spake unto you while I was yet with you, that all things must be fulfilled, which were written in the law of Moses and in the prophets and the Psalms concerning me. Alright? So all the scripture is about Jesus. And we'll finish up with this thought. This is one of my favorite little aha moments I had one day. I was teaching a group and we were learning. Um, I have a lesson where we go through Psalms 23 and then we go to John 10. Psalms 23 is what? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want him. And, right? and then you go to John 10 and of course what is Jesus telling the Pharisees there? I am the good shepherd. I lay my life down for the sheep. So what is he doing? He's saying that in the book of Psalms is written about him, that he's the good shepherd. He, he's laying his life down for his sheep. And so it it draw, Jesus draws those two passages together and makes us see that they're all about him. But what's so funny and beautiful about that to me is this. Who wrote Psalm 23? His great, 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 great granddaddy. Yeah. All right? And when Jesus was a kid and went to synagogue, guess what they sung every week at synagogue? The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want him. They sung it. It's a song. And so he's been singing to him all of his life. Now he stands in front of his peers. He stands in front of his peers and his enemies and says what? Oh, by the way, that's about me. That's amazing to think. Could you imagine? And remember, he's 100% God, but he's also 100% man. And he had to grow in wisdom. As a boy, he didn't realize all that. And he had to come to those conclusions as he sung it. And as the Holy Spirit revealed it to him. You see, that's amazing to think about. And it shows us how the Holy Spirit has tied all the Scripture together. And it's all about Christ. It's all about His promises to us. And that is where our faith needs to be. Our faith needs to be in the object, which is Christ, which is the Creator, which is the Savior, which is the one that died and saved us. Amen? Next time we get back together, please try to save those, because I don't know if I'll be able to print more copies. Um, Please try to save that. When we get back together next time, we'll try to get through maybe four to eight or somewhere along in there. But thank you all for your time tonight. Let's close with a quick prayer. Father, you are so good to us, and you love us, and you have sent us your Son um, not only that we could see Him uh, in the flesh, uh, but so that He could teach us about You and, and Your love for us and, and Your amazing mercy and grace. Help us to focus on Your truth. Help us to be sanctified in Your truth. Help us to receive that truth, believe that truth, and walk in that truth. Give us the willingness to do that, Lord. It's not easy. We're a fallen people. You know we are nothing but uh, ashes and dust. And we're so temporary, and we need your eternal truth. We need your eternal promises. We need your hope. We need you. And so be with us now. Take these words that we've learned tonight, apply them to our hearts so that we might apply our lives to you. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Amen.